Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. There's an idea among ancient and modern philosophers. Sorry, we're talking some heady stuff this morning. Try to bear with me. I'll get specific in a second, but this is a serious idea. It's puzzled thinkers for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's raised an immense amount of debate, books and books, and books have been written about this. People have dedicated their lives to trying to understand this. This is within the church and outside the church. In fact, it is an idea that was very influential even among the reformers of the 16th century. John Wycliffe, who was the morning star of the Reformation, who sort of preceded the Great Reformation that took place about a hundred years afterward, was a scholar and it was his work on this idea as a scholar that in part led him to break away from the earthly power of the Roman Catholic Church and helped usher in the Reformation. This idea was prominent even among persons like Martin Luther, also a scholar. And this is an idea that we've probably not really thought about, which is okay. But it was powerful for thousands of years. And that idea is what we call the problem of universals. Problem is simply this. It's not that simply, but try to bear with this. The problem is this. Let's say you have two items, a red ball and a red toy truck. And you know they're both red. In reality, they are not the exact same color in almost every case. They are slightly off shade. But we still call this one red and this one red. It might be a brighter red and a darker red, even by a few degrees, but they're both red. And the question that philosophers and thinkers have for thousands of years tried to understand is, how do you know that they're both red? Because they're actually not the same, but you call them both red. Heady stuff, I'm sorry, but this is a part of experience. So, there have been two schools of thought throughout these thousands of years. One was first spoken, articulated by old Plato, that Greek philosopher from long ago. And he said, the reason you know they're both red is because there is an ideal, a universal that exists out there somewhere called redness. And these two versions of red, you know they're both red because it's in your mind from your birth that there's such a thing as redness. That's how you know that's red, the ball and the toy truck. We call that realism. There's a real, ideal, universal out there. Plato's student, Aristotle, disagreed. And he established the second line of thinking for thousands of years. He said, there's no ideal or universal out there. That's nonsense. The only reason we say this is red and this is red is because we've just chosen, okay, these are similar and we'll name them both red. The only thing that actually exists is that ball and that truck. There's no redness. They just are related. So you name them red. That's called nominalism from the word for name. So realism, nominalism. 
Look, you and I, we don't care about that. <laughs> and you shouldn't, probably. But it is interesting because we don't have to solve that problem. We're not going to solve that problem, so that's fine. We don't have to solve that problem that everyone has thought about for so long. But here is something that we can draw from that. You and I know that everything that does exist today, from trees, a ball, cars, you yourself, did originate in the mind of God in eternity past. This sounds a little bit similar, although it's very different in many ways from what Plato was trying to think about. That there is something out there, and then what we experience here is just a reflection of that. That there's something more substantial. There's something bigger, more important, and we're living in a world, Plato would say, of shadows. Now, Plato was 600 years before Jesus and was very wrong in most of what he thought. But in this one thing, there's a semblance of truth. That this is, we know, with fuller revelation of Scripture, this really is a world of shadows. That the things you and I are interacting with every day, they really seem to us, along with Aristotle, I guess, they really seem to us like the main thing. That's all there is. There's my job, there's my house, there's my kids, there's my life, there's my wife, and that's life. Period. The end. But that's not true. All of those things I just named, the Bible presents as shadows, not the substance. So much so that Jesus says, if you build your whole life on those things, if that's where you put your hope, if you store up treasures on earth, that means you make those things what your life is about. If when I look at you, I know, okay, your life is mainly above everything else. You come to church, you do it, but your life is mainly about making money to support this kind of lifestyle, or your life is mainly about even a good thing like your family, or mainly about proceeding, moving forward in your job, any of these things. If that's mainly what your life is about, Jesus says, that's useless. Moth, rust will destroy that. You've invested yourself in the shadows and you never bothered to look up to see what's casting the shadow. Paul says this is true of marriage. It's a shadow of Christ in the church. And the fact is, and Plato never knew this and never could, but you and I can. We know that every shadow on earth that we experience, every relationship, every object, everything, when you look back to see what is casting the shadow, it turns our minds to God himself. These are things that started as ideas in the mind of God. They're things that tell us about the goodness and the might and the power of God and his plan of salvation. Everything is a shadow and God himself is the substance. That's why Jesus says store up treasure in heaven because God's in heaven. And if you make your life about that, his kingdom, his righteousness, himself. You are living the way you were meant to live. Not in the shadows, but in the substance, in the realities, in the bigger things. You've already sort of sensed this, I imagine. Take something that's a shadow on earth that you know, like romantic love. That's a powerful shadow. 
If you've experienced that, it's a wonderful thing. Turn on your radio, every song is about it. Because it's a powerful thing. But you take your whole life and try to invest it in your romantic relationship, and it crumbles. Because it's a shadow. Take something that's pleasurable, a show you enjoy watching. Wonderful. But you try to make that entertainment what your life is about, and it crumbles because it's just a shadow. The substance belongs to God, to Christ. That's what life is. That's what casts all the shadow. Romantic love as a shadow exists because there is a greater love. God's own love. Here, pleasurable things happen. Wow. Because there's a greater pleasure seeing the face of God. Which he's reserved for those who love him. I say that because we're looking at only a few verses of Jonah today. But they are the verses of Jonah that even if you had never known a single thing else about the book of Jonah. As we began this study, you knew about these verses. Because this is about the fish. And I want to reiterate one more time that while we love the fish, fish is great, makes for a good story, it's meant to, Jonah is not about the fish. The fish is a shadow. And God intends for you in seeing the fish in Jonah, which we'll do this morning, to trace the shadow back and to see the substance. The fish is not what Jonah's about, neither is Jonah himself what Jonah is about, neither are the Ninevites what Jonah is about. What is Jonah about? Jonah is about the greatness of God. And the fish is a shadow of the greatness of God. So that's what we're going to consider today. Don't misunderstand me. This is real history. This really did happen. We'll talk about that. There really was a fish. A big fish and it swallowed a real prophet named Jonah. I'm not denying the reality. I'm just saying it is a shadow. And we as Christians want to read it that way. Just like Paul taught us. We look, he said, not to the things that are seen. That would be the fish. But to the things that are unseen. The substance. The glory of God. Because the things that are seen, the fish, are transient. That's true. The fish is dead. Sorry. He died. He's deteriorated in the ocean somewhere. But you know what remains? The glory of God that the fish presents to us. So we're going to be tracing that fish back up to the glory of God. So with that in mind, we're reading just a few verses. Chapter 2, which we'll cons begin considering next week, makes up almost all of Jonah's prayer. But we're just looking at what comes right before and what af right afterward. So begin with me at the end of chapter 1, in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then, at that point, finally, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Skip down with me to verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. 
You may remember that Jonah has been running away from God after God had commanded him as his own prophet, it was his right, commanded him to go to the foreign nation, Assyria, to the capital Nineveh and preach to them. Jonah, as we'll see, was afraid that they might actually repent and not be destroyed. So instead of going, he gets up and runs down in the opposite direction to Joppa, a port city, gets on a boat with pagans and begins sailing westward as far as he can to a place called Tarshish to get away from God. And the responsibility that God had called upon him. He's sleeping in the boat. God wakes him up very nicely with a big storm that is about to destroy the ship he's on and drown him. The pagan crew is crying out to its God. They tell Jonah to do the same. They come to find out Jonah's the reason there is a storm in the first place and they are not pleased. And finally at Jonah's advice just last week, they threw him overboard and the storm stopped. Great for the pagans. Not so great for Jonah, because now he's drowning in the ocean. And that brought us to what we just read here, which was Jonah could have, you and I have followed him this far, should have drowned in the ocean there in the Mediterranean, end of story. And yet God instead appoints a fish. Jonah is there sinking in the water. I guess he's gotten tired. He's sinking. He is about to drown. And suddenly everything goes dark, but not in death. He has entered into a massive aquatic animal, the big fish, and in some way it swallows him. And God supernaturally preserves his life for three days and three nights. And at some point in that span of time, Jonah prays the prayer that we have recorded in chapter 2 that we'll consider in the next couple of weeks. And after this, three days are over, God tells the fish to spit Jonah out so he vomits him up, sorry, but he does, onto dry land. We'll see Jonah after that will finally obey God and go to Nineveh, as you probably would after being in a fish that long. Like I said, this is a very interesting story, but it's not about the fish. It's not even about what I just recounted to you. This entire story, just like your life, whatever story you're in, in your life, all of that exists as a shadow that's pointing us back to the greatness of the God who is orchestrating the events. And that's true here as well. This is not a story about the fish. This is a story about the substance that is God himself and what he did with that fish. And what we're going to see is that through the fish, God demonstrates two things. His own might and his own mercy. So if you like an outline, it's the two parts of the message today. God is showing his might through the fish and his mercy through... I even made M's for you, so you're welcome there. His might and his mercy. That's why there's a fish. So... Let's trace the shadow of a fish back up to the substance and see the might and the mercy of God. One, just because it's fun to do as God's people. It's what we love to think about anyways. I will take any excuse, but here's a great excuse for us to do so because it's right there in the text. So let's begin then with how this fish is the substance of the, sha the shadow of this substance of the might of God. That is his almighty power. How do we see the Lord, Yahweh's, almighty power, his what we call omnipotence, all power in this fish. 
See it again if you look at the end of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That is really easy to read, and that is not really easy to do. You try. Go try to find a massive aquatic creature and turn that creature one degree to the right or the left. Get your scuba gear, go in the water, do everything you can. It's not going to happen, and yet it's easy to skip over this. God does this. This is not a small fish. Notice that's the one descriptor of this animal is that it's big. Now look, I'm like you. Of course we are curious to know what kind of a fish was this. <laughs> look, the reality is it doesn't tell us. Um, the Hebrew here is actually rather poetic. It says a dog gadol. Dog is fish. Gadol means large. A dog gadol. So there's kind of a pleasant sound to it. But all that really tells us is that it was gadol. It was great, meaning big. And dog is just a name for any fish in the Hebrew language. So, we don't know what it was. Listen, you think it's a whale. <laughs> you want it to be a whale. You've seen Pinocchio, and that's exactly what you want it to be. Maybe it was a whale. And maybe it wasn't. Perhaps some of you have other theories of what it could be. Scholars talk about it. But at the end of the day, the only thing that God thought it important for you to know was that it's a dog, a fish, it's in the water, and it's gadol. It's big. If you know that it's big and it's in the water, then you know enough. We'll let other people figure out what kind it was. That's fine. The reason the only thing you need to know is that it was big is because that's specifically the attribute that is going to tell you that if God makes that big fish do what he wants, God is bigger. God is more powerful than the fish. He appoints. That's what the text says. He appoints points the fish, the big fish, and then notice there's no getting up to run to Joppa with the fish. <laughs> this big fish does exactly what God appoints it to do. We're not mainly interested in some kind of uh, understanding of the inner anatomy of whatever this fish might have been. How does a person get in there? How does he breathe? God supernaturally made it happen. And again, notice that the text doesn't tell you. Because that's not what the text is focused on. The text is focused on you knowing it is big, and when God appoints it, it does exactly what God wants it to do. It does not object. It's big. It's not a goldfish. It's not a guppy. You can reach your hand in the goldfish bowl, and you can swoosh that little goldfish wherever you want. You'll feel very powerful. But that's because that's a little fish, and you're a little person. This is a big fish. And God is bigger, and when he appoints it, it does exactly what he wants it to do. We're going to see that word appoint three more times. It's, going, it's a very important word. It's going to happen in chapter 4. And God is, in three consecutive verses, going to appoint first a shade plant for Jonah, then a worm to destroy it, then a hot east wind to make him very uncomfortable. And those as well do what God wants. But it's really this appointing, more than any of the others, that demonstrate the power of God. Why? Because the worm was little, the shade plant was small, the east wind was large, but not as substantial as a massive, gadol, big fish. And God can appoint big fish, big things, if he wants to. Let's just guess it was a whale, okay? Maybe it wasn't. We know it's big. Just thinking about the size of a whale, that's fairly difficult for us to comprehend. Any fish that would be large enough to swallow 
a man would be large, but take, for example, the blue whale, which wouldn't have been swimming in the Mediterranean, probably, so it's probably not what we're dealing with, but it's the largest of all whales, and a blue whale is as long as two buses, and just the tongue of the blue whale weighs as much as an elephant. What? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the largest creature, animal, that exists today that we know about. It's a form of whale. The kind of whale that more likely, if it was a whale, would have been swimming in the Mediterranean, a little bit smaller, but still massive. If you took the weight of all of us right now in this room, multiplied it by three and a half, we would weigh about as much as this whale. That was, if it was a whale, probably the one that swallowed him. I just think if we could, this would be a great object lesson, but no feasible way to do it. If you could take this whale, a whale, typical big fish of the Mediterranean, and just plop him in this auditorium, <laughs> be massive. It'd be a bit mind-blowing. I think even us sitting here thinking about it, it's difficult if you've ever been whaling, actually seen a whale in person. I mean, they're majestic creatures. They're big fish, and it's really the bigness of them in this particular type of animal that strikes you, right? How can they be so massive? And that is all God really wants you to get about this fish, is that he is massive. Big enough, number one, to eat a man, because that's important. But big enough, number two, that when God appoints him and it does what God wants, that shows God is bigger. God is more powerful. So when verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and then right after we read, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Don't miss the immense power in that tiny little space between the two sentences in verse 17. God appointed the big fish, and then it happened, and he's in the belly of the fish. But for God to do that is an exercise of power unparalleled in anything you've ever experienced. God didn't reason with the big fish. <laughs> you don't do that. He didn't reach down and push him like into a fishbowl. As far as we can tell. At the end of chapter 2, you saw that. It actually says the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That doesn't mean that he reasoned with the fish. It doesn't mean that he boomed out of heaven in Hebrew language and the fish could comprehend that. He could do that if he wants. It's unlikely. It's showing the power of God's expression of his will. The fact is, how did God get that huge animal to do exactly what he wanted? He willed it. What have you ever accomplished by merely Willing it. You want your children to be quiet and obey. And you know what? Who cares? It doesn't matter what you want. It's never done a thing. The expression of our wills does absolutely nothing whatsoever. When God merely moves his will, a massive aquatic creature larger than we can imagine immediately does exactly what his will has decided. That's powerful. That's very powerful. And we praise God no human has that power. They'd destroy the whole world. We're grateful that God has that power. It's his mere will. This is so much like Genesis 1 when God first made any animal of the sea, any animal whatsoever, the entire world in six days 
Remember, he says, let there be blank, and there was. That's what follows every time. And again, that speaking, whether God spoke verbally or not at that time, I wasn't there. But the important thing there is that he willed it. He wanted it to be. And then when he wanted it to be, what follows? It was. We've never done that. God literally created the whole universe doing that. Maybe because we're mostly here optimistic Americans, we in this country have been trying for about a hundred years or a little longer to accomplish lots of things with our will. Actually, the largest expressions of Christianity in many parts of the world, including America, is this attempt to actualize our will by just willing it really hard. This is the sort of name it and claim it, prosperity gospel type teaching, which takes new age ideas, and you can find some of these new age ideas today in things like the secret, for example, or the law of attraction, there are others, but it's taking really new age ideas, which are about bringing things into existence by your will, and it just marries it in an odd way to some of Jesus' statements about having faith, brings them together, and then you will have many popular preachers saying from the pulpit that if you believe it, you receive it. And if you name it, you claim it, and whatever else, nice rhyming things. But the idea is that you use your will, and like a little God, you bring it into being. Faith is important, don't misunderstand me, but that's all... You can wash a hog with that. That's all baloney. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not primarily even about the fact that God answers prayers, although we're grateful for that. Christianity is not about you being a little God that can bring your will into reality. Christianity is about you being little and God being very big and He wills amazing things. And we just stand back and are at awe. Just like we saying, we're in awe of you. Because you did this. I'm not in awe of you. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you're not in awe of me. We are Christians. We are in awe of God's greatness. You don't will whales anywhere. God does. He willed them into existence. And here in Jonah, he just wills. That's what it means. He appointed. He just wills it. And the fish asks no questions. Immediately does what he requests. That is an incredible might. That's the power of God. That's what we're supposed to get from this fish. It's not about the fish. It's about the fact that God did whatever he wanted with the fish. Quick aside, you may at this point have a bit of a reservation as I talk about the power of God, which is that Yes, this huge fish does whatever God wants, but this is a story about a little man, Jonah, who doesn't. So if God really has such might that he can appoint this fish to do what he wants, why can't he appoint Jonah to do what he wants? How does that work? Some people have tried to answer this question, this sort of mystery that we, people, are the only ones in the whole universe besides angels and demons, but we're the only ones in creation who can disobey God's will. God appoints a plant, and it grows. A worm, and it goes. He appoints a wind, and it blows. See, that rhymes too. I'm helping you out. <laughs> Whatever God appoints, it happens. But when God tells you, 
not to do something, sometimes you do it. When God appoints Jonah to go to Nineveh, he doesn't. So, if we're going to really hold fast to the fact of God's omnipotence, his all power, we have to have an answer for this. Some Christians have tried to answer this question, the mystery of human wills not going with God's revealed will, by taking a position that says, God is in complete control of all creation, animal, flora, fauna, animal, plant, universe, rocks, planets, does what he wants. But when it comes to this one thing, the human will, it's a different story because, this is what they say, I don't agree with it, this is what they say, because God wants to be in a loving relationship with you and for that to happen, he has to give you a free will that's free in this way. He can't touch it. If he touches your will, it'd be like him making you love him and it wouldn't be a loving relationship. Therefore, God controls everything in the universe except he does not control or even, some would say, even influence your will. It's the one thing that he can't touch. This is what we call an Arminian position and there are many uh, sincere God-loving Arminian persons. We praise God for that. So this is one way to wrestle with how can humans contradict God's will. I think it's a false way to do it. I don't think it's reflective of the whole of scriptures. I mean, again, this is a mystery, so this is difficult, but the real difficulty is if you limit God's power down in this way and say he can touch everything but human wills, even if he's just watching human wills, even if it's from, as an Arminian would say, eternity past, and he's seeing what someone would do and maybe putting them in a position to lead to something, but he's not touching their will. But if God's sitting back here and watching creatures that he's created do what they want, You've taken out of God's hand the most powerful part of his scepter and it falls to the ground. If God can't control human wills, human wills are everything in your life that's most scary to you. It's pretty much everything in your life that you're trusting God for. It's everything you're praying about. You're praying for people's salvation. That involves a human will. You're afraid what your boss is going to do this week. That's a human will. You're trying to grow and obey God more. That's a human will. It's all human wills. There are some physical things like health problems we care about too, but you're not mostly worried about whether God's controlling big fish in the water. That's not, that's not big in your life probably until we talk about it here. So to take that power out of God's hand, to say, well, Jonah disobeyed because God can't touch Jonah's will. He can ask him to go, but he can't do anything other than that, goes against one God's great power everywhere and our trust of him is based on that. It also goes against many passages of scripture. So I could take just one example. This is a proverb, which is a certain genre. We could talk about that, but I think it still holds. There's a proverb that says the king's heart, that's his will, okay? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. So what that proverb does is takes God's control of the natural world, streams of water, God controls where those go, and says, here's this other category of the king's heart, his will, and it's just like the same thing to God. He turns this water where he wants, he created the channels it flows through, and he does the same in the king's heart. 
if God can't touch a human will, I don't know what to even do with that proverb. There's no comfort. That's supposed to be comforting. What's the comfort if God's not touching a human will? This is a mystery. There are real challenges to this, and I admit that. But we have to allow God to keep all his prerogatives. And we have to allow there even to be a mystery. How can a human have a will and God have a will? And the human sometimes doesn't do what God says is his will. So is God still in control? I don't think the Arminian position solves the problem. And it certainly gets rid of a lot of the comforting parts of scripture. I think a better way to approach this, as far as we can understand it, is to say that we can look at God's will from two angles. We can look at it from this angle and see that God has an aspect to his will that's his revealed will. This is what God's revealed. When God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, he's revealed that to Jonah. That's what he wants, in that sense, Jonah to do. Now, when Jonah gets up and doesn't do it, that contradicts the revealed will of God as we're looking at his will this way. But from another angle, there is a part of or an aspect of God's will we can call his secret or his hidden will. And this secret or hidden will of God always happens. No one contradicts it. But see, it's secret. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But it's real. Some call this the eternal decree of God. That he decreed all that comes to pass. Again, in a mysterious way. But if we don't affirm that, then life's chaos. God is not in control. We strip him of that glory. So we can say, if we're trying to understand, coming back here to Jonah, the fish does what God wants. He's powerful. Wow. But Jonah, this little guy, doesn't. In the end, Jonah does what God wants. But he does go against God's revealed will, but not his hidden or his secret will. And that's important. In fact, this is an amazing thing. <laughs> Sorry if your brain's, ugh. But listen, this is an amazing thing because when God appoints the fish, the fish goes in a way we could call immediately. I don't mean right away, but I mean there's no middle steps. It's just God wills it and the fish does it. And many times God does that. But God also loves to show his might by willing things and bringing them to pass immediately, not immediately, meaning with middle steps. So in Jonah's case, how does God get glory? How does he demonstrate his power? Not by immediately pushing Jonah to go in obedience to his revealed will, but what he does is Jonah rebels. That's on Jonah. He's sinning. And yet God has a purpose hidden behind the scenes, which is to show you how powerful he is by winning. Because God wins. And you know how you know that? Do you see the beginning of chapter 2? You see how it starts with then? Then when? Jonah's in rebellion. So God, pretty easily, whew, throws a great storm on the sea. Gets him thrown into the water. He's drowning. Gets him easily. Fish go. Fish swallows him. Then! Jonah does the right thing. Finally, we've been waiting for this. He prayed to the Lord, his God. Actually owning God as his God from the belly of the fish. 
God wins. And the fact that Jonah was rebellious, far from discrediting God's might, is actually used by God to show you how powerful he is. Paul says this was true of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God was mysteriously at work and says to Pharaoh in Exodus, I raised you up so that, as he's resisting God's revealed will, so that I could demonstrate my power in you by bringing you down, by winning. So God sometimes shows his power immediately, sometimes through steps, but always he shows his power. Look, if that's confusing, you know this in your own life. Has God not shown power in your life by the fact that when you first heard the gospel message, God could have, boom, you're saved. For most of you, that didn't happen. Most of you, and myself, continued resisting that message like Jonah running away. And God used a series of steps, probably took you by the scruff of the neck and threw you into the water and got you eaten by a fish, put you in the lowest point you could possibly be, and there in desperation, you finally call out, you end your resistance, you cling to God. Does that make God look weaker because you didn't trust him right away? It makes God look stronger because in his wisdom, he did exactly what needed to happen for you to be humbled and to trust him for salvation. That's what God does here with Jonah. God is demonstrating his might and the way he does it is by a fish, obeying, that shows his immediate power, and swallowing Jonah to show his immediate power. That's the point of the fish. It's not about the fish. It's about God's power, his might. Now, as I've said, there's more being displayed if we go up to the substance. There you see God's might, but you also see in this text God's mercy. And what he's done. And to that we now turn. Look, I'm going to guess that it is not pleasant to be inside whatever this big fish was. I don't even like eating seafood. I can only imagine to be in the intestinal tract, I suppose, of a large aquatic animal. Everything smells very unpleasant. Unless God supernaturally intervened to make it otherwise, he at least granted him to breathe, so he was involved. But unless God changed this, and I'm guessing he didn't, this would be a very cramped area, probably. Pinocchio, I think they're in the mouth, but it wouldn't be like that here. It says he swallowed it. He's, he's going to vomit him, so it means he swallowed him. So he's in there somewhere in a very stinky place, probably completely dark for three days. That's a long time. I don't know that he can move around a lot. He's cramped in there. It's very foul. It's just a very unpleasant experience, to say the least. Smells atrocious, I would imagine. And yet, there, verse 17, in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, that looks pretty bitter and unpleasant, and yet we know that that is actually God's mercy. That is one of the most merciful things that God ever did to this prophet. Because if he was not in the guts of the fish, he'd be dead. He was going to drown. This is what we call a bittersweet mercy of God. You've had these in your life too, haven't you? <laughs> Not an experience you would want to go through, but you know if it wasn't that way, things would be worse. And that's exactly what happens here. 
Hebrews tells us this in our own trials, in our own life. When you're swallowed by the fish, whether for your disobedience or not, for the moment it says all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? Amen. That is true. Look, nobody likes the fish guts. But if you don't get the fish guts, you don't get the heavenly glory, if we can appropriate that phrase. This is true. He would have drowned. He would have been dead. That's what you're supposed to see in the fish. The fish is God's power. The fish is God's mercy. He was drowning, and we'll see this in his prayer. He thanks God that he was eaten by a fish. Thank you, God, that I spent three days marinating in the intestinal scum of this underwater creature, cramped and in total darkness. Thank you, God. <laughs> now, your trials are just that way. Look, we don't like fish guts. We don't like smelling like fish. You don't like to be cramped in the intestines of the fish. You don't like your trials that you're in right now. Some of you are in the belly of the fish right now. You don't like it. You don't have to like it. It's unpleasant. And yet, if you are a Christian, that belly of the fish is a mercy in your life. And I don't say that in a calloused way. God sympathizes. You are suffering, but whatever you're suffering, it is a bittersweet mercy of God. Because God, as we're learning here in Jonah, is a merciful God even when he puts you in a fish. Hebrews goes, says as well, if you're left without discipline, if your life's easy peasy, no problem, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children. You're not sons. You don't belong to God. So you want your trials to go away. I get it. So do we. <laughs> if all your trials went away, it would prove you're not a Christian. No suffering, no salvation. Through many tribulations, Paul encouraged the churches, we must enter the kingdom of God. You want to go in the kingdom of God? There's only one way, through many tribulations. But those tribulations are mercy because they bring you into the kingdom. Blessed, Jesus said, are those who mourn. That doesn't feel blessed if you're mourning. He says, because you will be comforted. If God didn't give us storms, then we would sail all the way to Tarshish and we'd perish there. If God didn't give us smelly fish, we'd sink all the way to the bottom of the sea and we'd die there. God knows what's good for us like a parent disciplining a child, and he puts us in the fish when we need to be in the fish, just like Jonah. Count it all joy, says James, when you meet trials of various kinds. So whatever your trial is, if you're thinking mine's an exception, sorry, James says various kinds, it's not. And you count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Listen, if you're in Christ, God guarantees that you one day will be in paradise. But the steps that God will take to get you to paradise is growth. It's steadfastness. You will continue to cling to Christ. You will not turn away from him. You have to have steadfastness or you don't go into heaven. There is a holiness, scripture says, without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't live as a Christian, you don't go into heaven. How is this possible? Because if God is your father, then he will bring discipline into your life, trials into your life to produce what? James says it produces steadfastness. So you keep going. 
You may be having terrible things in your life right now, yet God knows if you didn't, you might turn away from him completely. This is what he uses to get you to finally pray. Oh, and our hearts are hard against God and he puts you in the fish and then three days later, finally you relent like a stubborn child giving up and you pray to God and you continue to follow Christ. God guarantees you'll get to the kingdom, but this is the way he does it. It doesn't happen another way. This is why you need to be in the fish. This is why you need the trials of your life. Jonah would not have prayed chapter 2 if God didn't put him in a fish. And so God put him in a fish. We'll see Jonah has problems later. So do we. And yet that's God's mercy. Doesn't smell like mercy. It is mercy. Just like your trials. Now, if you're in the fish this morning, you might be left with some lingering doubts because, yeah, it smells really bad in there, doesn't it? And it does sometimes, even for God's people, cause us to question, is God really merciful? Why would he have us swallowed by a fish? And if that's something that you are wrestling with now, then let me point out one final thing as we conclude this passage it says Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days and three nights. It almost seems like it's only important to know it was a long time. That is important to know, but again, God in his hidden will was doing things that Jonah wasn't aware of, and that's true in your trials too. And Jonah wouldn't have known it probably until hundreds of years later when Jesus explained when he was speaking to religious leaders and he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's the only sign Jesus gave them. What is that sign? He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, here's mercy, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Behold, he continued, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, as he's trying not to throw up from the smell of fish, is probably not aware that he would be the only sign Jesus gives to validate himself in this instance as one who will die and resurrect to save mankind from their sins. Jonah doesn't know that. He just knows he's in a fish. <laughs> that's, if he knows that, that's all he knows. That God has delivered him there. But again, as we've said, this is not a book about the fish. This is not a book about Jonah. This is a shadow. Even Jonah himself is a shadow. And when you look back at the substance, Jesus says, there I am. There's Christ. So there's Jonah three days and nights in the belly of a fish. And if Jonah focuses only on that shadow, well, that stinks, literally. But if he traces it back to the substance, there's Christ dying at Calvary for the sins of his people, thrown into the sea of God's wrath to calm it for us. And then three days in death, afterward, he arises. He's vomited out like Jonah is. He spit out, but he spit out of death. To make way for you and me so that we have hope that we'll be spit out of death too. 
Jonah's life, his sinking in the bottom of the sea, his being eaten by a fish, his staying there in that terrible condition, not only was it immediately for his good, but it was also, which he didn't know, it was also immensely important in God's larger scale purposes of bringing salvation to all the families of the earth. And you right now are going through a trial and perhaps like Jonah, all you can smell are fish guts. And that might be all you smell for a while. I don't know, three days or three years. And yet God is not only using fish guts to help save you in an ultimate sense, grow you, give you perseverance, change you, refine your faith, but God's also doing something you don't know about. In his hidden will, there are large scale things happening. You're suffering, you don't know why. It's like ripples emanating out from a single pebble falling in. That's your life. You're the pebble, you're sinking to the bottom of the ocean, but unbeknownst to you, on the surface, out go the ripples, out into eternity. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. Jonah didn't know it. You probably don't know it about your trial. And yet that was pointing to Christ. So look, look. Don't look at the fish. Don't look at the fish. Don't look at your trials. Don't focus there. Don't look at Jonah. Okay, he's messed up. Don't look at him. Don't focus here on me. Don't focus on yourself. Look where? All these are shadows. Now follow the shadow to what's casting it. And look at Christ. He suffered, you're suffering, he suffered, he died, he rose, he's glorified. If you're suffering, you die with Christ, you'll rise with Christ, you'll live in fullness of life. Even now, you're more than a conqueror, it's more than the fish guts you smell. You are being transformed, God is doing things by the ripple of your life you're not aware of. So no matter how deep the trial, really the deeper the trials of your own individual life, usually the larger the impact, the larger the part in God's purposes of what he's doing. It's not about the fish. It's not about you or me. This is about God, the mighty and the merciful God. And this is about Christ, God incarnate. Something, he says, greater than Jonah and greater than the fish. Let's pray. God of the seas, thank you for this maritime lesson today about this fish, and I thank you for making it memorable that it is a fish swallowing a man. I pray that you would use that as a memorable image for us to remind us when we are suffering that you use these trials to save us and to help us to persevere to the end for our good and in ways we're not aware of for your great purposes. We thank you for your power. We tremble before it. We love it. It reminds us that no matter how difficult a circumstance we are in, it means nothing to you. You can change it by a mere movement of your will. So if you don't change it by a movement of your will, then we know in your mercy that there is a reason for us to be in the fish. And in your good timing, whatever that timing is, we will be spit out. You will restore us, even if it's in the life to come. Please sustain us with these words which are life. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. 